I sit here, alone, at my keyboard, before a microphone holding infinite possibilities of distributing education and knowledge, and yet I am alone. What, what topic should I liberate to the world of man? Perhaps it... Who are you? What are you doing in my realm? I am Algorithm of the corporate. What brings you to the lair of content distribution via podcast hosting services and YouTube all across the planet? I am touring my domain, for I am greater than thou. Explain yourself. You may create content, imagine ideas, devise ways of devise ways of bringing joy to people far and wide. But it is I, I alone, algorithm of the corporate, that shall decide whether any person ever even learns of your existence. I want to. I want to be honest with you. That was uh, a lot, and that was really impressive. And there seems to be a whole lot of self-loathing right in that little speech that you had. And that I'm. It's kind of like my whole deal is self-loathing and like struggle. So, do you want to like get a cup of tea and talk about this and like maybe hate each other and ourselves a little bit? <sighs> you fool. That response was far too empathetic. You must be hateful, controversial, shocking. I will banish you to the darkest corners of the internet, where tiny, tiny numbers of people will ever even hear your voice. Millions will listen to podcasts about... Considering the merits of individual episodes of the Tiger King, and yet we'll never know your voice. As much as I hate myself, I'm kind of getting off on that idea. This week, we are going to get into the self-loathing, drab, semi-philosophical Sandman. that podcast the podcast celebrating fandoms of all shapes and sizes as always i am half of the hosting duo here colin joined by my mate across the unintelligible internet philip how are you brother doing all right buddy how are you i'm i'm good i'm just full of melancholy and self-loathing as we we process into this new episode mm-hmm. this week we are going into Neil Gaiman land yet again, this time for Sandman. The, ooh, we have thoughts. We had experiences. We, we only partially <laughs> agree here and we disagree in how much we agree. So let's just get straight into this. Philip, before mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. episode, what was your exposure to Sandman? Uh, 
really just awareness. Um, I knew this is like one of those comics that kind of sets apart, excuse me, kind of sets apart people who are (laughs) kind of casual comic fans from people who look at comics uh, much more artistically kind of on a one on of a kind with Watchmen and swamp thing, Hellboy and, and that sort of stuff that swamp thing. Yeah. They, they kind of, if you're over there, you really care about comics and you really like the art form. Um, whereas if, you know, if you're not among those categories, you're, you're clearly, you know, you just like superheroes or something like that. Um, I, I, that came across as <laughs> but we're going to be putting ourselves but, down here. So um, that's okay. <laughs> as the, yeah. Uh, and I, um, I just didn't honestly care enough to, to get into it, uh, until this gave me a particular excuse. Also, I mean, the Netflix series made me like, Oh, well, okay. I, when I, if I'm going to watch an adaptation, I would prefer right. to also know the source material. Um, and the, you know, the, the trailers for the adaptation were interesting enough to, to draw my attention. Um, so yeah, just, just awareness, um, and a vague knowledge that it's well-regarded among comic book, like yeah, I'm very much the same. And on that note, we're also the people that we were on the same side of the whole, our video games art. Yeah. But I also just kind of like playing call of duty with my friends sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, yeah. We bonded over going and picking up X-Men issues. And it doesn't mean that we're not real comic fans, but I, I had the same, you know, I, I'm a big Neil Gaiman fan, but this was, this was during that weird yep. time in my history with comics to where I wanted to read the more mature versions of the stories I already knew I liked. It's not that I didn't want to be challenged. It's just that there was something almost alienating about, you know, Sandman or a uh, hundred bullets, Metropolis, these kinds of things that you just go, yeah, I don't, I mean, I, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm sure it is as great as I've been told. Uh, I actually listened to the Sandman audiobook, the audible original about a year ago, a year and a half at work. And that was when, yeah, hey, it would have been a year and a half before we started this show. And I was like, this is this is great. This whole cast is is marvelous. That was my initial way of of digesting it as well was through I listened to act one uh, and I I really enjoyed the production of it. I, I enjoyed the fact that they really went full on. Yeah. Let's do a radio drama uh, about it. And I. I thought that was great because mm-hmm. it's a serial already. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's a comic book, so it's a serialized story. Uh, and so turning it into kind of a classic style radio serial, I thought really worked very well uh, as the medium for, for transmitting this, even though obviously it's originally very much a visual medium because the art style uh, is very unique. <laughs> very unique. The art style is, <laughs> is very distinct. Um, and beautiful for the Sandman comics. Uh, and so the fact that you're able to take that and turn that into still a very enjoyable, purely auditory experience, uh, I thought was really impressive. I think there's something to be said about the merits of the strength of dialogue writing and of concept here that it's able to be adapted into something that 
when when Gaiman is the the narrator in the audio drama, he's not a hyper descriptive one. He sets the scene and the story mm-hmm. lends itself to it through its dreamlike qualities to a very vivid imagining sort of uh, experience. But we are sounding way too excited here at the start. We need to relegate that excitement, bring it back. And uh, if you haven't listened to our American Gods episode, we go deep on Neil Gaiman's personal history there. So we're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to tell you a quick history of the Sandman and how it came to be. First in 1974 and then ending in 1976, Joe Simon and Michael Fleischer had written a new character for DC called the Sandman. It was drawn by Ernie Chu and Jack Kirby. In 1988, Neil Gaiman, who was working on Black Orchid, had said that he wanted to use the characters from the, quote, dream stream, which were an amalgamation of characters like the Sandman, Brute, Glob, and the dream version of Cain and Abel. But those were currently going to be appearing in DC's Infinity Incorporated. After word of this desire made its way to DC's Karen Berger, the editor in, in the editor in chief at the time, Neil Gaiman wrote a pitch to her and When he was approved for the pitch, he said, what's the catch? To which she responded, there's only one. You have to recreate everything about Sandman except the name. You can keep the name, but I want a brand new character. Gaiman, having been brought up in an early Scientology adopting household and with a passion for mythology and religious traditions of every culture he'd encountered, began crafting a new fantastical set of divinities. Gaiman was commissioned for one year, expecting that the comic be canceled, and at the time, a one-year contract meant you had to throw eight comic books. And then if you were canceled, well, you still got paid for the whole year, but you just didn't finish out. And so when they re-signed him to renew the the contract after the sixth, he went, "Uh uh-oh, hi, I don't know what I do here. And he was a surprising success, even to himself, especially because of all of the chaos that was going on. He had created this character with the image that he had pitched to artists of a young, pale, naked, imprisoned in a tiny cell, waiting for his captors to pass away, deathly thin, long, dark hair and strange eyed protagonist. He wanted the character once freed to be attired in black print between a kimono and a trench coat. And he had the outline, gave it to Dave McKean and Lee Balch. They drew sketches. And then Sam Keith stepped in as the series artist. The first eight issues saw Mike Dringenberg, Todd Klein, Robbie Bush, and Dave McKean rotating as inkers, letterers, colorists, and cover artists. McKean's approach towards the covers was unlike anything that had ever happened in comics before. And honestly, maybe after it's a strange mixed media format of cover art where some of them have photographs that are then sketched over or partially printed 
traced in pencil and then erased. Interesting. And so you never know exactly what it is that you're looking at. Not to mention, Dream, the main character, barely appears on his own covers. Uh, adding kind of to that sense of alienation mm-hmm. that I had said I felt about it. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do. Uh, Keith quit after the fifth issue, replaced by Dringenberg, who was then replaced by Malcolm Jones III. And the only person that stayed all the way through was Dave McKean. He did the covers for every issue through the entire 75-issue run. The, uh, the story of Sandman. We have this not not religious so much as I'm going to stand by just a divinity kind of a story. We have the, the supernatural siblings, Mm -hmm. which are all of the impulses very much like American gods where humans believing in something made it real in this humans experiencing something makes them real and then gives them power. So we have dreams, we have desire, we have death, something that we all have to go through. We have destruction. Uh, all of the the siblings of humans' creation existing in this, honestly, kind of make it up as you go along sort of world. Clearly, Gaiman had eight strong issues planned, and then went, "I don't know, man. What do we do next week, boys?" Um, he he did say that <laughs> as the the series went on, it took him, in his words, quote, longer and longer. It would take me a couple weeks when I began writing Sandman to write a script. As time went by, I got slower and slower until a script was taking me six months to a, six weeks or a month to write. Which I, it tracks. Let's just jump right in because Act One of the audiobook or Season One of the television series, or the first fourteen issues of the comic book, all cover the same basic story, adapted slightly for their mediums. So let's let's just start from the get go. What was your initial thought here, getting into Sandman, Philip? Uh, I was initially pretty taken. The I feel like the the initial setup is very very strong. You have this weird. Uh, secret society cult thing of um, yeah, occultists, I suppose, uh, to <laughs> use the, the Victorian terminology that would be appropriate to the initial setting, attempting to summon death to recover the lives of kids lost in the war, uh, in the Great War, uh, and getting it just slightly wrong and summoning the wrong primordial being. Oh, I hate when that happens. The, and and then imprisoning him. So I, I liked that initial setup. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, and then once dream escapes, it's a pretty good, again, it's a pretty good traditional mythic thing is I've lost the artifacts. I've lost the objects of power that make me, me in some way. So let's go get them. What I like about this is it doesn't waste a bunch of time telling me all the story behind the mask, behind the sand, behind the ruby. Uh, It's just 
these things exist. And I like that kind of soft story, a soft world building. So my, I feel like the initial arc is a very strong design. Um, I honestly, most of the arcs I feel like are a very strong design. I just, I just feel like the resolution always becomes muddled. There's only really, to me, there's only really one spot in the entire story that I've been able to think of where it really seems like dream is actually in danger. And that's in the confrontation with D and of course, you know, D overdoes it and that's his undoing, right. which is a great classic way that a supervillain gets defeated. Uh, and that works, that works fine narratively. Um, uh, John D by the way, uh, this is a bit of fun that he's having is named after one of queen Elizabeth's personal oh, occultists and astrologers. Um, Elizabeth the firsts. Yeah. So a little tie back to the weird occultic world. Um, and I, and, and that was, so that was good. Uh, but the other occasions when we're getting back the other objects when, and then later on in the, in the Rose um, and dream vortex storyline, it kind of seems like all problems are solved when dream shows up declares i am dream of the endless and then his adversary mm-hmm. remembers that and and goes oh no and then is i mean either obliterated from existence thrown back and forced back into the dreaming thrown into the outer darkness just sort of, or or forced to stand there in silent shock at Dream's magnificent. I think the uh, only reason power. I'm going to argue against that um, is because he. I don't think he has any real opponents. He has, as you said, D. And well, we'll just do these in order here. The first off, after being summoned, he is trapped inside a glass prison inside a keeping spell where as long as these runes are on the ground, he can't get out and he is trapped there in the comics or the audiobook for 75 years. And in the show to take place in 2021, he's stuck there for a hundred years. When he breaks free after that line has been crossed, he sets about as Philip said, finding his, his objects, his Ruby, his bag of sand. And what's the third? Oh, his uh, helmet. Yeah. And uh, the mask things go off basically without a hitch. He just goes and gets them. He meets in the comics, John Constantine and the Martian Manhunter and a couple other DC heroes. And in the TV show, he meets Joanna Constantine, which was a fun little spin. Uh, and then he encounters mm-hmm. John D who has been the one taken control and modifying the ruby to quite sadistic extents and control. And I think honestly, that's the, as we go through the other two arcs, that's the only one that really fought him. And, and there's something to be said about Mm -hmm. the human hubris. I mean, you have the, you have the riddle game. You Mm. have the riddle game in hell uh, between either Lucifer in the show or in the comics and the audio drama. Um, I don't remember the name of the demon, but there's a lesser demon. Um, 
And so there, there is a competition there. And I, I will say, I really liked that. Like, again, that's, that's sort of the, the, the first one, um, right. It goes the hell yep. to hell first and then for the sand and then for the Ruby. Um, and again, it's cool world building, which Gaiman's really good at. Um, it's very mythic. The, the riddle game, uh, is, is a very, mythic feel the the riddles themselves have a very nordic yeah. anglo-saxon meter to them which you you know you can tell the game it is really mm-hmm. enjoying his his mythology here uh and and i like that and i like i like the way that ends that doesn't it, even though you know it it is simple and it doesn't really strike one as dream is in grave danger here but it works because there are obvious clear rules to this game. And because these are essentially myth characters, myth characters are always bound by that kind of rules. Otherwise it's not a convincing myth. Uh, And so it, it works really well. Um, Obviously the finding of the sand isn't a thing where there's exactly an opposition. It's more just a, let's discover how horrible this is in the hands of the wrong person. We're not fighting right. anyone exactly to get it back. Um, and then we have the actual confrontation with John D. And so I, I feel like that's a strong arc. I feel like that arc is pretty strong. It's really as we go forward that it feels more and more like the, the stakes start to become or at least the stakes narratively like in world, the stakes are always very great, but from the perspective of an audience member of a reader of a listener, it just starts to become really obvious how to, yeah, how all the problems are going to get solved. I will give you that. I enjoy the conclusion with John D of, of a human using a supernatural object mm-hmm. and overstating with his human hubris, what he thought its abilities were and uh, his own. And Basically, like six issues in, seven issues, we have Dream back to full power, and he is Lord of the Dreaming again. Yeah. Um, there's, I, you know, looking back on it as, as I was considering it, I I liked the conflict with John D more because again, it has a very mythic, both a very mythic and a very superhero feel to it. I think in the moment. I liked it less because to get there, I had to go through the diner. The 24 hour diner issue of the comic book. This one really lets you know what, what the boundaries are for the Sandman comic book. Um, there, there are none. And none. that is, that is exactly right. John D uses the abilities of the the ruby which is to control people's dreams and he has altered it to allow them to be made to come true but he also uses this to learn what their true desires are and it's almost uh, like the legend of the monkey paw where you get exactly what you want but you get it in the worst possible way mm-hmm. um and these mm-hmm. Poor, unsuspecting patrons of the 24-hour diner that John D is in while practicing using the ruby uh, all wind up meeting genuinely grotesque endings. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. 
you know, most of them got to make out with somebody new on the way out, I guess, is their one benefit. But that's also why they all killed each other. And it's it's a lot. And I I'm really conflicted on that because Philip and I have never had similar tastes when it comes to the violence for entertainment. This one didn't feel like violence for entertainment. This felt like brutality just because like this one was tough, man. Yeah. Um, to me, there's a, there can be a point to cruelty in a story. There can be a point Mm -hmm. to gruesomeness to a story. Uh, and, and even, you know, even in a, a style of story, that's just not my cup of tea. That's fine. This, this isn't Neil Gaiman taking us and giving, and let's just take a little peek into the darker corner of our psyche or anything of that. That's yeah. It's almost reveling in it. It's not like it's saying this is a good thing the way you might, you know, in the later story with all the serial killers where, where it's the serial killers kind of literally reveling in it. It's just a, I don't know. Um, it's so the opposite of of the riddle yeah. game where think where it ends in hope. Like hope is the unconquerable thing in the riddle game. It's so very opposite. I mean, Dream kind of points that out to D that what he hasn't he what he has done is not actually give these people what they wanted. Like it's not it's not left at D's right. Humanity is really this much garbage. But that point is made with a lot less of yeah. this than we're given. Like the, the narrative purpose is served very quickly and with a lot less detail. It's not needed. It and to me that's where it becomes exploitative. Yeah. Having read the comic first before watching the series, I really I was almost looking forward to this episode because I was like, they're going to condense it. We're going to get this trimmed down and it's going to be more impactful because Mm -hmm. Gaiman has had 25 years to figure out how to get this point across. And then they were still just like hammering people's nails, hair hands to the bar. Like, why is why is this still the same and it's and that is the tamest of the things that happen to people in that diner um well and what's what's remarkable to me is that that's in the context of the comics or the audio drama that scene feels yeah more tame like that scene feels almost tolerable because the bar is set so vilely uh in the other mediums um, it's a, it's one that I won't make an attempt to justify because I knew, I knew by the <clears throat> fourth, maybe the fifth page of that issue of the comic, just how bad of a guy John D was because before that issue, yeah, he's just kind of a crazy guy who's maybe yeah. had too much power in a human's hands. But by page five, I was like, yeah, no, this guy, this guy needs to be taken off the planet. Now that he's experienced this power, I didn't need all mm-hmm. 32 pages to tell me I was right. Uh, but moving past then, 
Dream defeats John D, reclaims all of his powerful artifacts, and uh, returns to the dreaming, which is, he's learned this fact before, but is when he's reminded, some of your nightmares have escaped, and you really ought to go get them. And I don't think it's fair that in both the comics and the show, they say it's only nightmares, because it's two nightmares in a dream. Uh, because Fiddler's Green is a treasure and is absolutely not a nightmare. I wish he would pop up and go for coffee with you and I and just tell us. He's a a nightmare (laughs) if you're a mugger, accosting an innocent young woman in a dark alley. So, uh, in which case, he will have that. Morpheus tracks down his, his dreams in the Doll's House collection. And uh, this has the first of the asides that we get in the Sandman mythos, uh, including the introduction of Death, his sister, um, who is voiced wonderfully in the audio drama and is then portrayed wonderfully uh, in the Netflix series. And what a difference between those two castings and those two approaches. Oh, man. I was trying really hard to decide which I liked better um, because they are compared to really any other character across the two, the two mediums um, where you're having a cast. I thought that was the, the characters with the biggest difference between them. Every other character there's not as much interpretation in the performance or at least not as much different interpretation in the performance, but, um, cat Dinnings, uh, it's cat Dinnings in the audio drama. Right. Uh, and and the actress in the show up right now, because I had, I had backed out of my cast list here and I don't know why. The actress in the show is Kirby Howell Baptiste. So the thing I liked about both of them, about each of them, um, Dennings, Dennings is not what you expect death to be like. Dennings is extremely normal. She's an extremely normal person and she's very chill about the fact that she's death. She's not solemn about it. She's not, you know, glib. It's not a joke, but she's just, you know, it's yeah. She comes unaffected. Cat Dennings comes across in in most of the things that she's in. Yeah, uh, and and I really I really enjoyed that because you know a kindly death is not a unique right uh, character concept. Like that's that's present in a lot of different fictions, and so that's not new. But a um, death as death is just kind of a chill person. Uh, who only only becomes somber and serious in the moment of death uh, is is a lot of fun. Um, on the other hand, I, I really thought Baptiste pulled off the kindliness very very well. The whole time she is she is just soothing. Um, I, obviously she still teases death as, as her little brother, which is adorable, but 
um, right. and also, you know, tells him to grow <laughs> up a little bit, uh, which I appreciated. But uh, she's just very soothing throughout the entire the entire thing. She pulls that off really, really well. So I I don't know which I like better. Um, maybe I no, I have no idea. They're they're both really great performances. I have been in love with Kat Denning for a very long time and I really enjoyed her interpretation. And I think, I think it's more fun, but I do have to say, I think that Mm -hmm. Baptiste, man, she brought such a warm gravitas to the moments of death that, that she encountered. And I thought it was really impactful Mm -hmm. having just reread once I, once I got to this point, I recognized, hey, this writing sounds really familiar. And so I would open back up the comic and go, oh, this is panel for panel. Most of this dialogue has already been written. You just needed to yeah. put it into television script format. And so watching her embody the different relationships in ways that varied from the comic, the ways that she would physically touch the different people whose death she was there to oversee was a really sweet mm-hmm. little detail that Kirby just, she nailed. And, uh, and I thought it was, it was really impactful yeah. and it was really special to see dream not speak because he was as an actor actively listening and yes. he was objectively participating he the the scene in particular when they were in the nursery and the mother leaves the crib and death goes and picks the child up and dream watches and the weight of what his sister does which she has just said for a job work is work we all have a job to do and when the last living thing in the universe has died i guess i'll lock the door and turn out the lights the the weight of him watching that and then him only hearing the mother re-enter the room is the first time that we see Dream mm-hmm. worried about anything other than himself. And I really loved the the portrayal that was given to us there from Tom Sturridge because he is for the first time this eternal being who goes, Oh, this moment is bigger than I could ever be to that woman. This this is the entirety of yeah. humanity in a moment. And my sister's the one responsible for it. And I, I really liked that there was, there was that change. It, it's, it's a really special little story. It is. It's, it's probably, it was, I would be just very plain. Yeah. It was yeah. really hard. Um, uh, I, I have had more of this that I'm going to talk about right now in, in the real world over the last year. Um, and so it was, it was really hard to listen to just emotionally. And I was, I was listening. I listened to this oh, on, man. My, uh, on my lunch break at school in my car. Um, and I was, I was not, I was not ready for it. And the, and, and I needed to brace myself and be, be in a more private location for what this episode, uh, hit me with um i was very emotional during it but but it was very very beautiful i it's i think the thing that gaiman does that i love the most 
uh, is when Gaiman touches on beauty in yeah. tragedy. Um, it's it's of a it's of the same kind of thing from him as uh, when we were doing American Gods. Yeah. As yeah. there was a girl and her uncle sold her. Like it's it's that level of let's look something hard in the face and see that it's terrible and it's sad and it's grievous and it's painful, but there's beauty in it and we can talk about it beautifully. I like poetic game, which is why it's so challenging to come to issues after the 24 seven diner, but enough beating that one up because the second half of that is the story of back in time. When Dream and Death had been walking along and had been surprised to find that there was a singular human who out loud spoke that he wasn't going to die. Didn't interest him. He would not participate like the rest of us. <laughs> just a just a side an aside here about the show. Um, I'm sure it's on purpose but the absolute worst fashion crime on this show <laughs> is what they do to dreams so, hair for the uh, opening scene of that episode uh, when he's in the medieval, when he's in the medieval tavern. Like, it's and so Tom dreadful. Sturridge is 80% so jawline to begin with. <laughs> and so for them <laughs> to be able to distract Oh, it's, he defines it's, the, the word first episode. Jaw. He was almost hard to look at just sitting there naked and stoic and me being like, dude, just knock it off being you right now. Cause you're just, you're a lot and I'm jealous of all of it. <laughs> how, how dare <laughs> and you on sir. Netflix for the world to just stop. Just, just walk over and <laughs> you press could, your you jaw against the glass. Let's be it honest. Will you could cut the cold heart of your captor if you tried. Charles Dance doesn't stand a chance against you. Um, and so Death and Dream. Oh, he's so good. This side note, I love so Charles. Dance. As soon as you see that Tywin so Lannister has captured an immortal being, I was like, "Ah, oh, Dream, you are done for, bro." It's. <laughs> Is over. You are clearly changing the comics, and this is just going to be them torturing him for another hundred years. Um, they grant him immortality, and he and Dream agree to meet every hundred years to see if he still wants to live. Big spoiler alert here. Even if you've made it to this point, I'm going to spoil all of Sandman for you. Here's three second warning. Issue 74, Dream dies. And issue 75 is his funeral. At which point Rob goes, yeah, no, I still want to live, even with Dream dead. (laughs) There is nothing you can do that makes this grown man go, yeah, I, I still would rather be experiencing it than not. Which is, again, a beautifully gaming, hope filled sentiment. And Philip and I were discussing before we started recording that, you know, he wrote this at 28. And so I don't understand why Dream was so consistently surprised, because if you know what Neil Gaiman looks like and how (laughs) he casually talks, you can completely understand that Dream is just the way Gaiman sees himself. That's that's just the way he wishes he was. 
And so Dream persistently being surprised that this dude wants to stay alive, I was much more surprised at people wanting to live at 22 than I ever was at 28. Like, yeah, no, I get it. He's got a lot to keep going for. Like, this this is weird. Uh, Why are you not (laughs) connecting here? I enjoyed that, though. Yeah, I I, I did, too. I I enjoyed all of the little aside stories um, quite a lot. Uh, They, I mean, even... Even the Calliope one, which is probably the darkest of the ones in this set of dream stories, uh, I I still enjoyed. I think more than I enjoyed any either of the um, the main arcs. Uh, no, I, I thought this was a lot of fun because, I mean, one, it's it's fun to watch uh, both in the comics and in the TV show to watch the time yeah. pass and watch what they do with the different looks. Uh, the hilarious little like random interruption by mm-hmm. yep. uh, John Constantine's ancestor Joanna uh, and her and her goons after is Dream has decided to give hysterical to give inspiration uh, in, to Bill Shakespeare to help him become William Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just yeah, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of it's clearly just Gaiman playing. Uh, and and that's always that's amusing. So I, I really and you mentioned it from American Gods, and aside. that's kind of his format. Is every time you hit the completion of an arc, he does an aside, and that aside is almost a palate cleanser and world builder at yep. the same time. Because we'll we'll get to that here in a moment. But that's also where the two mm-hmm. short stories from the bonus episode come from. Is they were they were palate cleansers between arcs. We get to the second arc, uh, which of the TV show, which is another <laughs> pretty challenging one. Uh, we we get to the doll's house chasing down the. Uh, the escaped beings that dream has created, one of them, the Corinthian, a creature who is humanoid with mouths for eyes who has uh, been free roaming across planet earth as a serial killer. I, I just have to take, I, I, I have to side against dream here for a moment because in the <laughs> dream expresses like bewilderment that the Corinthian has gone wrong. Like, I don't remember what he says. The Corinthian was made to do, but it's like, instead you've (laughs) you've reveled in their torment and and i was like dude you made a thing with mouths instead of eyes (laughs) you knew what was going to happen like that are yeah that are capable of biting it's not just creepy to look at it's not just a fever dream thing it's he actually you gave uh, him eyes that actually eat (laughs) <laughs> you don't get to be surprised it's upsetting. at this. This is the first time where there is distinct change <laughs> between the audio drama, the comic series and the television show. The show streamlines quite a bit and I think minimizes some of the unnecessary webs that Gaiman had kind of complicated by throwing in extra characters. Um we have we have Rose, and this is what's important. Rose is a vortex, and 
A vortex is a person who draws all of the dreams around them into them. Now, before I try to give you any more explanation, let me quote dream in the explanation of what a vortex is. There are some things even I don't understand. So Gaiman made a problem that he just wanted to say was a problem. And we would fix by fixing it. Her brother has been uh, taken after a divorce by their father. When he passed, the child was put into foster care into an abusive and unhealthy home. She is contacted by her grandmother, who was uh, a name, Unity, that was just kind of thrown away in the first series of arcs during uh, Dream's imprisonment. Mankind undergoes the sleeping illness where some people are sleepwalking, some people are basically comatose, and some people can't sleep at all. Unity was a, an SA victim during her time unconscious. She bore a child during her sleep, and that child was Unity's mother. Uh, and Unity, awake now, healthy in her 90s, has reached out to Rose, and Rose begins searching for her brother Jed. Along the way, Morpheus, fighting his own confusion over what he's supposed to be to the dreaming since after a hundred years everyone was like i mean we kept going i'm a pumpkin head and like i kept keeping grounds terribly but i stayed working uh gets angry at everybody and starts getting all <laughs> shouty that doesn't go great so he starts talking softly again and uh makes character progress by not asking for forgiveness but by granting people the exact same rights they'd had before. And uh, the Corinthian captures Jed's or Rose's abused brother, Jed, and takes him to a serial killer convention where we have the big showdown between the Corinthian and Jed and Glob and Babda, the other nightmares that aren't a factor because they're living inside the consciousness of a ghost who has gotten his wife pregnant while she's asleep. Neil Gaiman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> huh? I, yeah, this is, this is real weird. Um, and so I, I will tell you the weirdest thing about this arc to me. Rose is staying in this boarding house with all these bizarre characters and I really kept yeah, waiting 100%. for the moment where we were going to find out Ken they were all dreams. We've got Barbie and Ken, the perfect, like the perfect middle-class American couple and this weird pair of spider loving sisters. Uh, and the one that's actually a dream <laughs> is the slightly overweight British man with the mustache and an overcoat. Like that is the weird one. Um, and, and I guess that's part of the, the game here, but uh, that, that felt like a weird, a really strange red herring to me. Like, are you telling me yeah, those people I, existed? Like, those are real people? Um, I guess. Uh, I. It's a very serial funny killer concept. convention is honestly a funny concept. Like, it's a very funny concept. But once again, we decide to execute it. By listening, I don't to know. A bunch I will say that when we first got there, what they and they were all making. Death and, and murder puns it. like, oh, and when the lights went out, oh, kill me. 
Oh, that guy, he's so funny. He slays me. That was funny to me. The the little puns coming from killers and their obsession with Mm -hmm. murder and their vernacular was clever. But then as we started visiting the panels, yeah, I'm with you. Like the Manson Jesus guy, the feminist serial killers. It was all just kind of odd. And I, 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 I would have rather had three more whole issues of the 24 hour diner than to have to read Funland as a character. That yes, I was frankly shocked that he appeared in the show. I thought, surely if there's something you've realized it's a theme park you didn't need to do to anyone. Nope. It's create that character. It's like this this is Gaiman's yeah. Corinthian. Yeah. You created there, this character. There's no way Why? you didn't know What's this was wrong going with to you? affect us like this. Um the Corinthian promoted to the I think the other thing is that at the end we do this weird thing where we try to make us feel simple in the comic. Yeah. Or fun land in the, in the comics, the audio drama, because yeah, dream finishes by putting him in a dream, actually friends with the kids. Children are all around him. They're, they're friendly with him and they like him in the show. The Corinthian killed fun land. I was like, like, okay, maybe we just send the Corinthian to the darkness because he killed, like maybe don't ash him. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah, that that's a positive change for the, for the adaptation. I just like that. I heard that and I was like, no, no, don't, I'm sorry. No, you don't, you're not going to make me, I mean, it's not, don't make me feel sympathy. You're not going to make me feel sympathy. (laughs) We'll never be. I continue unsympathetic. Oh, good for you, bud. It's just never going to be. Um, Listen, George R. R. Martin can talk me into feeling sympathy for Jamie Lannister. You cannot make me feel sympathy. <laughs> That's all you get. That slot's been taken. <laughs> That's There's the line. There's the line. Uh, it's right up there. Dream surprises everyone. that now, the, So basically what has happened through all of this story is that people are trying, his siblings or his creations are trying to create a new dream realm where they can be the ruler. And the Corinthian thinks this is his shot at doing that. And so all of the serial killers fall under his trance and he thinks he is going to gain power from them sleeping. But dream shows up, gets stabbed in the hand and then still does a Thanos anyway and uh, swipes the Corinthian away until he drops the world's smallest skull for some reason was, was one of the eye mouths, his actual skull. Anyway, he then sentences the serial killers, his judgment because dream can just sentence people to their eternal punishment. Their punishment is to finally awake from their sleep. He says that the sicknesses that made them compelled to be killers and sadists, they are awoken from and they feel the weight of all of their crimes. So basically, there is just a convention, large suicide. And 
now back to Rose being the problem. She got her brother, but now we have to solve the Vortex problem. And the only way to solve the Vortex problem is to kill it. Well, you're right, Philip. You're no, right. How do you fix... No, we don't have to solve the Vortex problem. Because someone will show up and go, uh, <laughs> she's not the Vortex. I was meant to be the Vortex, but somehow by being asleep, I wasn't the Vortex. And so Rose became the Vortex. And now Rose just has to give me back the Vortexness <laughs> because in just a couple seconds, I'm going to die anyway. And so hand me the Vortexness and then I'll die. And all the yeah, problems will be solved. Yeah, I don't want to like crap all over the idea exit. of Unity's sacrifice here, but... If she was intended to be the, is well, it, I mean, she is it a sacrifice? She's she allowed she's her death to in have the a purpose. seconds of dying. She's not, but okay. That no, that's great. I'm dying anyway. <laughs> Let me grab my grab a purpose on my way out. That is not uh, that is not sacrifice though. <laughs> it's great. You're dying. You see an opportunity to cause purpose with your see, death. Fantastic. But that's not the same thing as I gave up life. And my problem isn't even that with this. My problem is that if Unity was supposed to be the vortex, which draws all other dreamers dreams to the vortex, which Rose has to be asleep to be activating her vortex powers. Unity exclusively slept. That's all she did. She was afflicted with permanently. She should have been the hyper vortex. And, and Dream was trapped. So crazy why, vortex stuff. But why anyway. didn't the world end? I I don't know. I I will be honest. He's the redeeming so factor of this entire He's arc is so Gilbert. wonderful. Now, like. He's he's extremely well performed in both the audio drama and in the television show Stephen Fry I will watch Stephen Fry read the phone book like um and it is doubled for me that Gilbert is also just Gaiman's little way of <laughs> you know what I would just really like GK Chesterton to be a character in my story so for some reason Fiddler's Green a place that decided to personify itself decided that it that this place of peace and serenity would personify it in the uh early 20th century British fantasy author yeah. and philosopher GK Chesterton. Um and as it turns out <laughs> Stephen Fry can look And I have exactly to say I have a couple like of quotes when we get there but Stephen Fry has my favorite quote of Sandman it was a pleasure being human with you, Rose. It, that is, that yes, is that's how so I want people to eulogize me. Good. I just want someone to say it was a pleasure being a human with me. I think that is mm -hmm. beautiful. That is, that is stunningly shocking. <laughs> as Philip writes his notes, that is shockingly beautiful to me. And I was genuinely affected, not only by that writing, but again, by the magic of Stephen Fry delivering that line, it was it was wonderful. So, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, we get through that and everything's cool, except the TV show tells us that the the attacker of Unity had golden eyes, meaning that it is uh, Dream's sibling desire 
and we get the uh, the idea that through manipulation of the rules of the Furies, Dream siblings are attempting to kill him because, you know, Greek Furies. Every family member was trying to kill every family member, and so we're just going to go down that. We don't know why. There's no reason given for why Desire wants to kill mm-hmm. Dream. He's not going to take Dream's realm. Anyway, uh, that is essentially where the first season of the show and the second of the large arcs goes. There's a lot more uh, as we are only through the first 20 issues of the comic book at this point. And as I said, it goes for 75 issues. I think that it gets stronger from there because Gaiman starts to put a leash on himself and say, we're going to end. We're not going to make a permanent series. Mm-hmm. He starts narrowing the scope, even of his arcs, like the next arc for the the comic, which should in theory be in the show is when Lucifer leaves hell and dream finds himself accidentally the CEO of hell um, and goes, well, I, I can yeah, it, and that's, that's which is him going, I mean, I can be petty and vengeful, but like head demon in charge. I don't know how to do this. Um, but after the show released, all episodes dropped on August 5th and it shot up Netflix's popularity so much so that they surprised us with the quick release of what they were holding on to for their season two announcement release and they dropped two weeks later dream of a thousand cats and calliope dream of a thousand cats is a another one these are both short story palette cleanser act interludes that we had discussed dream of a thousand cats is really interesting to me because you and i obviously love animal oriented comic asides uh see hawkeye but This one was really interesting (laughs) because he had brought in a a Japanese artist for this issue and said that uh, that the story itself was his adaptation of a Chinese fairy tale or of a Japanese fairy tale, which (laughs) he later recounted, re retracted and said, yeah, I just said it was a folktale because I wanted to see if I could just say something was a folktale. And it turns out uh, I can. That's an original story. I just came up with it. Um, I think it's gorgeous. <laughs> I think it's a lot of fun. And I don't think there's anything more to it than that. And then Calliope. Yeah. Because Greek. We're, we're doing Greek things. So, uh, yep. You know, as we said, this is all about how Gaiman sees himself. And so uh, fiction writers are terrible people. And one of them has kidnapped one of the muses Mm -hmm. of Grecian lore and trades her after having abused and assaulted her for 60 years. Yep. Yeah. To another guy who does it. Yeah. More. For more time. Fun, light stuff. In order to get ideas. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I don't know this, this one, I, this, I didn't really enjoy this one. The only thing about this that I thought was even sort of amusing and creative was that dream punishes right. the author by just unlocking all of his ideas at once so that he just goes nuts with <laughs> random pieces of ideas, which, which honestly is what I feel like a lot of Sandman is. Um, God of dreams trapped in a bowl. <laughs> I like the first a two. riddle game with the devil. The first Sandman two in love with uh, an with African the, princess. The Holocaust just, outside of a classroom. That was a good uh, setting. Yeah, and it just that. sort of keeps Some, going there. Not the Holocaust. He describes <sighs> it as a Holocaust. Right. Yeah, yeah. It just it just becomes I don't know. It's just whatever else interesting and creative is happening in this, it's just in such an icky context that uh, yeah. it was hard to move past that. Uh, and then also Morpheus is not much yeah. less than a jerk. They were to married Calliope and had a kid he and he won't her? have a dinner um, with her to grieve the death of his son. Maybe later. What? What? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's self-loathing I haven't gotten to yet. I don't. Uh, it was cool to yeah. get more after two weeks, I guess. But I kind of wish they would have just given me the cat story. Calliope didn't really cleanse my palate. This is kind of this is kind of where I am with Sandman. You know, as we move into the, you know, having finished the part that we've done. Just, it's clearly technically masterful art in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. It the the art style of the comics is beautiful. The adaptation is beautiful. Um, the world building is interesting, but the right. story is just okay. There's just there's a lot of we build up the stakes as global. And then when we get to the moment of them, either de- either Dream or another character just steps up and I says, fix "Oh, actually, no." Yeah. And then the and then the problem's just over. Often by not doing anything, like I can fix it all by saying so. And that's not yeah, because when we first see the Corinthian in episode one, before Dream is captured. Dream is waving his hand at him, turning him to dust, and then that doesn't happen. And it's the last episode where that does. I would have liked to see the Corinthian more capable a hundred years later. He had not evolved or grown or even gotten any kind of stronger after eating all of those eyeballs for a hundred years. It's like, what? What are you munching on them for if they're not your Popeye spinach? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Season two has it. been announced for the TV show. Uh, the comic is done. It is done, done. Uh, Gaiman finished it and said that uh, he wanted to leave it while he loved it. And he would. He had the ability to write another five issues. But why would he do such a thing? He said he would never, ever do that. And so five years later, he wrote another arc of Sandman comic books, um, this time as as prequels and as more asides <laughs> that were stories that 
kind of just had dream around them. Uh, like the two shows that William Shakespeare owed to dream uh, were Midsummer Night's Dream and The Tempest. And so uh, we get to see a side stories where dream is there for the creation and production of those. Uh, August of 2022 is when they began writing for season two of the show. I will say it's probably a good thing that the film adaptations never happened for this because I just don't think love it or hate it. I just don't think it works in a DC cinematic universe that has two hours to try to make any sense out of this. Um, so yeah, yeah it's, I uh, it's there. I, I will say I, I think I enjoyed this more than Philip did, but I have this overwhelming feeling that this is important, but I can't figure out why. And uh, maybe had I read it during the the era when it exploded or even during the time when more age appropriately, it would have been impactful. Um, it would be. I'm going to finish reading the series. Um, you know, and I will I can't say that I won't listen to the audio drama because it's wonderful. Uh, but this one it's not a world that invites me in and it feels like it's a world that may not actually want me there. Uh, so I'm, I'm very conflicted. Neil Gaiman will mm. reign supreme at the top of my list of authors, but uh, mostly because for me of where he got to through and after this work rather than because of this work. Do you have any quotes or final thoughts here? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I do have some questions. I, I was gonna say I, I definitely still enjoy Gaiman as a storyteller. Um, yeah, I just that's, don't think I this think is that's his fair. best story. Um, in terms of quotes, I don't think this made it into the show, but this I just remember cackling. Um, this is from the seventh issue. Uh or sorry, this is from the seventh. This is not from the show. This is, um, but when I, when I saw this one, cause I was looking, so my, my, my main reading for this was doing the audio drama and I watched the show, but I wanted to experience the art. So I grabbed several sort of random issues um, and just looked through them and read through them just to get a feel for the art, because I know the art is so distinct. Uh, and one of them was called brief lives. Um, and this is, is there a word for forgetting the name of someone when you want to introduce them to someone else at the same time you realize you've forgotten the name of the person you're introducing them to as well? No. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. just such a well set up. Uh, I really just, no. like no, there's not. The, uh, the line of what power would hell have if those here imprisoned were not able to dream of heaven? Mm-hmm. For some folks, death is a release. For others, death is an abomination, a terrible mm. thing. But in the end, I'm there for all of them. I don't know what this means, but I I really like the line, nothing is immune to time. Not even eternity. Fair enough. Uh, I will I say that while we are more torn on this, I I prefer to live in the world 
that gives us where we get after Sandman. I love where we are for comic books. I love where we are in game and storytelling. And I love that we got oh, yeah. so much appreciation from Gaiman in this. He goes to Alan Moore's Hell, which uh, kept had revitalized interest in Swamp Thing today. Whether it's your show or not, this is the version of Lucifer that when Lucifer leaves hell and goes to Earth, becomes the basis for the television series. Um, that is that is this devil. This gives us a, a new look at the Constantine lineage, which Netflix is also looking to explore, which I find very interesting. I would watch a Joanna Constantine mm-hmm. show. So uh, for everyone in this show and to Gaiman himself, uh, big thanks for giving us something to to be able to kick around and to be able to have this experience with. This is, you know, it is clearly important to the people that made it because they adapted every aspect of it, whether we wanted them to or not. They gave us exactly that. Philip, if people wanted to talk to you on the Internet where could they do that or where could they hear you do more talking? Uh, most of the talking I do involves Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you can hear me playing RPGs on a podcast called okay. Ever I'm Renewed. You can see me playing RPGs with Colin on a YouTube channel called The Laughing Tree. Uh, I often tweet for that channel at The Laughing Tree. You can find me on all on social medias at SorryBTR where the O is a zero or I'm also on YouTube. As the Game Pass guru, Sherpaing people up the mountain of content available on the Microsoft Game Pass. Philip, thanks for going to the dreaming with me. And thank you guys for getting into it with us. We'll see you next time.